If you could turn with me to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me pray. Lord, we just pray as we come before your word and as we look into this great letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, We pray, Lord, that you would help us understand really what Paul's mission was. You would help us understand that you, Lord, empowered him to do it. You called him before he was born. Lord, you gave him the grace necessary to carry it out. And Father, that his desire was to bring the obedience of faith to all the nations for the sake of your name. I pray, Lord, that that would be our heart also as we look at this text, that you would inspire in us a desire, Lord, to take your gospel and declare it to the nations, that they might become in obedience to it. Lord, that you might be proclaimed in all the earth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, a lot of you know I picked Romans 1. 1 through 5 really is kind of our theme um, section of verses uh, to establish this church as a church plant. As I wanted to teach through the book of Romans, and I thought to myself, what a great section to have kind of as a theme to our church plant, and um, because really it lays down several underlying principles as it gets to really the purpose as to why Paul was an apostle. He was an apostle, why he did what he did, what his mission was, which was to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations for the sake of the name of Christ. And so I thought, man, what a great verse, really, verse 5, to to serve for us as kind of our theme verse and the four verses before it to kind of undergird that. Because as an organization which the church is. It's both an organism and an organization. As an organization, you have a mission. You have a purpose that you exist for. You do. And oftentimes, churches forget what their mission is or what their purpose is. Often do. It becomes a problem. But it doesn't just happen in churches. It happens in all sorts of areas, right? Right? Happens all over the place. And I'm sure you guys have seen organizations that have gotten off mission, right? Gotten off track. You seen them? They're doing things they should never have been doing. For example, McDonald's went off mission when they made the McRib. (laughs) Didn't they? 
something they should never have done. Carl's Jr. went off mission when they started selling beer in Bakersfield. (laughs) They did. It was a test case here. And now I am not at all sure what their current advertising has to do with selling hamburgers. Ford went off mission when they made the Pinto. (laughs) Didn't they? Joel Hepner told me today, somebody made off, went off mission when they made the Gremlin, but we couldn't remember who did. <laughs> Ugliest car. The Dixie Chicks went off mission when they started speaking about politics, didn't they? Yeah. Uh, Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger went off mission when he ran for governor, right? I mean, he's just way off mission. Anyways, my point is, <laughs> my point is that someone... Or some organization loses its sense of mission, and when it does, it becomes effective and does dumb things. And this happens all the time in the church. It's happened in the Protestant church for the last, you know, I mean, for the existence of the Protestant church, I'm sure. But it's happened throughout the history of the church. And in the last century, I can think of several. For example, the social gospel that cropped up in the early part of the 20th century. It was this idea that we did not primarily need as a church to be proclaiming to people that they needed Christ lest they be damned forever underneath the wrath of God. But instead, what people really needed, what the good news was, is that Jesus tells us to go out and serve the poor. That social gospel, by the way, is cropping up again in a group called the Emerging Church, who's throwing out the atonement of Christ and the necessity of salvation from eternal wrath in exchange for a gospel that is good news about how God can help the poor. The church went off mission. Didn't know what its purpose was. The flip side of that in the 20th century was the response of cultural fundamentalists. Now, when I'm talking about cultural fundamentalists, I mean that aside from theological fundamentalists. Theological fundamentalists are those Men who came along and said, these are the truths that we believe in. These are the fundamentals of the faith. Cultural fundamentalists are a group that kind of um, did this. They, They basically removed themselves from the society to the point that they were no longer able to penetrate the culture with the gospel of Christ. But instead, they hid out in little homeschooling communities in Montana and stocked up guns and supplies waiting for the return or waiting for the coming of the Antichrist or the rapture, hoping, of course, that the rapture would come first. That happened. That is true. That's an extreme version of it, but it's true. They went off mission. Another movement was the seeker movement, seeker-sensitive movement. The church lost sense of its mission. They wanted to make the church a place that was acceptable to all. And in doing so, made it a place that was not acceptable to God. Or what is now, you know, I just came up with this term today, the full service church movement. This idea that the church is now open to meet all your needs whether it be child care or counseling or music preferences or camps or clubs or weight loss groups or in some cases, even hula dancing classes. That's true. One well-known evangelical church, which will go unnamed, 
has a hula dancing ministry in which you can accomplish all five purposes for the glory of God through hula. (laughs) True. Lost a sense of their mission. (laughs) The problem is the church has often lost its understanding of its mission. So then the question is, what is the mission then of Sovereign Grace Church of Bakersfield? Listen, our mission is to declare the glory of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. That's our mission. That's why we exist. I want you to notice that Christ is central to our mission. Declaring the glory of Christ in all things for the joy of all peoples. He is central to our mission. His glory is the display of his characteristics. His glory is what we declare, and it was what Paul declared. Jesus really is the center of Paul's introduction to this book. He's the center of it. He's not only the center of Paul's introduction to the book to, or to the letter to Rome, he's the center of all of Paul's theology. He's the center of all of biblical theology. And as such, Jesus was central to Paul's mission and is central to our mission. Today I want to establish what Paul's mission was. What affirmations he made about Jesus as the central focus of his mission. And what affirmations we make about Jesus as the focus of our mission. Look at Paul's letter with me. As a way of review, if you look at verse 1. First Paul, well, in verse 7, Paul tells us that his recipient of his letter is the church in Rome. But what he wants to tell the church at Rome is something about himself. Because the church at Rome does not know Paul. He's never visited there. They know of him. They've heard of him. But he's never visited there. And he wants to establish who he is first and foremost. So he starts off saying, I'm Paul. And I want to tell you something about myself. I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. I belong to Christ. He is my master. And I am both humbled by that and honored by being in his service. That's who I am. I'm Paul, a bondservant of Christ. Called to be an apostle. That's my office. Set apart from before I was born for the gospel of God. And then Paul tells us what his authority is. He tells us his authority is one, that he belongs to Christ Jesus, but two, that he, that gospel of God that he's teaching was promised beforehand through God's prophets, in the Holy Scriptures. That's his authority. It's the authority for what he does. It's the Bible that is his authority. Then he tells us whom he is proclaiming concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. I am proclaiming to you the Davidic Messiah, the God-man who both suffered and died and was resurrected and exalted as Lord. That is whom I'm proclaiming. He is the center of my mission. Him, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The center 
of remission. And what's his purpose or mission in proclaiming Jesus? What is his purpose or mission in proclaiming in Jesus is what he tells us in verse 5. Why do I do this? You know why? Because I want to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations for the sake of his name. That's why I do what I do. That's why he's the center of mission. I want to bring about the obedience of faith in all nations for the sake of his name. His mission is to declare the glory of Christ. Listen, the sake of his name speaks about God's glory. It exalts the glory of God. That's what he's about. He wants to declare that. It's his purpose. To declare the glory of Christ in all things. Because when we put ourselves under the glory of Christ in all things, we're in the obedience of faith. And I'm going to flush that out some more in a little bit. For the joy of all peoples, which I'm going to talk about how Grace issues and joy, but I believe there are five affirmations Paul, Paul makes about Christ as the focus of his mission. There are five affirmations that Paul makes about Christ as the focus of his mission in this verse. Really, 4b through 5. He makes five affirmations, starting in 4b and going through 5, about Christ as the center of his mission. And I, I want to say this. These five affirmations are five affirmations that we, as Sovereign Grace Church, are making about Christ as the focus of our mission. I'll tell you this. I will not be able to get to all five tonight. I was going to try, and then I realized it would be like 10 o'clock before we got done. So I'm going to get to three of them tonight. The three of them tonight, and I'll do the next two next week. But here are the five affirmations. Five affirmations of Christ as the focus of our mission. One, Christ is the Lord of his church. Christ is the Lord of his church. Two, Christ is the source of grace that empowers us for service. Christ is the source of grace that empowers us for service. Three, Christ is the Savior and Lord that we obediently trust, or whom we obediently trust. Christ is the Savior and Lord whom we obediently trust. Fourth, Christ's lordship, Christ's lordship is to be declared to all the nations. And fifth, Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. If you didn't get to four and five, that's okay. Next week I'm going to cover four and five. Christ's glory is the goal of our ministry. Those are the five affirmations. I'm hoping to get through the, three, the first three tonight. So let's deal with the first one. Christ is the Lord of his church. First, Christ is the Lord of his church. Look at verse 4 and B. He, Paul tells us all of these things about who the Son is, and the Son is the focus of the gospel. And Paul tells us all these things that he is man, that he is the Davidic Messiah that's been promised, that he is the one who suffered and died, who was humiliated on our behalf. And then he tells us that he is fully God. That he is the one who was resurrected from the dead and as such became the exalted Lord, seated at the right hand of God. He tells us that about him. And then he concludes that by saying, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus means Yahweh saves. Christ is the Greek word 
for the Hebrew word Messiah. And Lord is the idea that he is reigning. He is on the throne. It's a declaration of something about him. He is Lord. That is how we can say all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I have it all. I reign. I am Lord. And Paul says that about Christ. He's Lord. In fact, in 1A, he kind of hints at that when he says that he's a servant of Christ Jesus. What do you say when you say you're a servant of someone? You're saying that they are your master or Lord. Correct? And then in 4B, he says, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then if you look down at verse 7, he says, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Three times in this opening section, Paul asserts the lordship of Christ. He tells us that he is the Lord. In Romans 14.9, he says this. 14.9, he says this. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Listen, here's the reason Christ died and lived again. To this end, Christ died and lived again. What is it? That he might be both Lord, excuse me, but he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. When Christ rose again, he was appointed to be the Lord of the dead and the living. Was he already God? Yes. Did his role change in his exaltation as Messiah? Yes. He's both the he's the Lord of both the living and the dead. He's the judge of both the living and the dead. But not only is he the Lord over all things, he's the Lord of his church. And that's so often forgotten by the church. We so often talk about the Lord as the Lord of all things. Jesus is the Lord of all things. He's the Lord of my life. He's the Lord of all everything else. But we forget he's the Lord of the church. We think, well, I mean, how do we do that? We forget that he's the head of the church. Listen, when we leave out his word from the church. Because the head of the church has told us what the church ought to do here in this book. And when this book is ignored for other ideas or other ministry tactics or schemes, we are no longer operating under our head. We've assumed the lordship of Christ. When the leaders of the church do not operate in complete submission to the word of God, they have usurped the authority of Christ in the church. Wrongly stole it from him. Listen to what Colossians chapter 1 says. It says this of Christ in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. It speaks of his preeminence, his supremacy of all creation. For by him all things were created, were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Listen, and he is the head of the body, the church. Hear that? He is the head of the body, the church. 
We're told the same thing in Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1. Or excuse me, Ephesians 1, yeah. Told the same thing in Ephesians chapter 1 and Colossians 1, that Christ is the head of the church. Perhaps one of the saddest realities throughout the history of the church, and probably the thing that's most currently in vogue, is really the dethroning of Jesus as the head. Historically, it showed up probably most obviously in the setting up of the Roman Pope as the vicar of Christ, or the Roman bishop as the vicar of Christ. That's historically where it probably showed up the most. John Huss, have you heard of John Huss? A reformer, really, a pre-Reformation reformer. He wasn't a reformer when, he was a reformer 100 years before Martin Luther came along and the Protestant Reformation really got legs. But John Huss um, was a, a man, he, he's really his name was John. He was born in a community called Hussenek. Hussenek is um, this community in which he lived and he decided to shorten the name of it. Instead of being John of Hussenek, he decided to be John of Huss or John Huss. He's called that. Huss means the goose. So when he shortened to Huss, people referred to him as the goose. John the Goose. He was martyred on July 6th, 1415, by the Roman Catholic Church. We know that Goose, you know, the phrase John the Goose stuck because Martin Luther, Martin Luther, who felt deeply indebted to John Huss, by the way, from reading his writings, referred to the martyrdom of John Huss as the day the goose was cooked. (laughs) That is a true story. But it's actually where we get that term, that phrase, the goose was cooked. True story. Sounds funny, but it's true. Before burning him at the stake, they clothed him in all his priestly garments. Clothed him in all his priestly garments. Brought him out before the crowd. Stripped all the priestly garments off of him to demonstrate that he had been defrocked and excommunicated. And then they set fire to him at the stake. He was sentenced to die by the Council of Constance, which was presided over by the Bishop of Constance. As they led him to the stake, it's reported he said this, Lord Jesus, it is for you that I patiently endure this cruel death. Have mercy on my enemies. He was then heard reciting the Psalms as the flames engulfed him. What were the three doctrines that Huss was teaching that got him burned at the stake? Want to hear them? First, he said that all true believers are members of the church. Sound radical? Second, he said the authority of the Bible is higher than the authority of the church. And third, and probably seen as the most abhorrent doctrine, he said that Jesus Christ is the head of the church and not the pope. The Vatican Council says this about the Roman pontiff. If anyone shall say that the Roman pontiff or pope has the office merely of inspection and direction and not a full and supreme power of jurisdiction over the universal church, not only in things which belong to faith and morals, but also in things which belong to the discipline and government of the church spread throughout the world, 
Or if anyone assert that he possess merely the principal part and not all the fullness of this supreme power, or that this power which he enjoys is not ordinary and immediate, both over each and all the churches and over each and all the pastors and over each and all the faithful, let him be damned. One of the primary Catholic theologians, Ludwig Ott, concludes that the Pope is judged by no one because there is no higher judge than he. Luther said that if Christ were on earth and preached his own headship, the Pope would crucify him. And that he owed no more allegiance to the Pope than he did to the Antichrist. Luther had a way with words, didn't he? <laughs> but this doesn't just happen in Roman Catholicism. It happens in Protestant churches as well. In fact, I listened to a sermon by John MacArthur in which he argued that he believed, he argued that this was the single most assaulted doctrine in the church today, the headship of Christ. He believed it was the single most assaulted doctrine in the church today. And he gave some ways in which we deny the headship of Christ in evangelical churches. And I modified some of these, but here are some of the ones he gave. Modern liberals deny his deity and his resurrection. They deny Christ's deity and his resurrection. MacArthur said you cannot have a dead head. You can't. The seeker movement silences his rule by removing his word and substituting anything and everything else. You remove Christ's word and you have dethroned the head goes on to say, Bible scholars who translate the text to fit with their modern cultural agenda, as is happening in many contemporary translations with regard to feminism, have silenced the head to hear their own voice or the voice of their own culture. The emerging ter- church denies the clarity and propositional truth of the Bible so we can no longer hear the word of the head of the church. The Christian mysticism movement has replaced the word of the head with their own experiences as their authority. Paul goes on to tell us that, if, that it is Jesus Christ our Lord through whom we have received something. Look, look down at, look back at chapter 1, verse 5, Romans. It says this, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Jesus is not only the Lord of the church. He is also the source of the grace that empowers us for service. Not only the Lord of the church, he's also the source of the grace that empowers us for service. Christ is the mediating source through whom we receive grace. When Paul says through whom, he is telling us that Jesus is the source of the grace we receive. As sinners, we, de- we deserve justice and wrath. The Son of God became man. He became the Messiah promised to David. He suffered, was tempted, and in his death took upon himself the condemnation that is due to every believer. He then rose from the dead and was appointed to be the Son of God in power. He is Jesus Christ our Lord. If we are in him, grace has been given to us. Do you hear that? If we are in him, grace has been given to us. We are declared righteous. We have been born again. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. 
those things have happened because of the grace of God that has come through Jesus Christ. Before I go on to talk about, though, really the impact of that grace in our lives, because I'm going to talk about that, the impact of that grace in our lives, I want to point out a few elements in the text. First, look at this statement where he says, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. It's interesting because as you read this text, he starts off saying, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. He doesn't identify any other apostles, and then he goes on to say, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He doesn't identify at the beginning any other apostles. So the question is, did Paul suddenly, when he changed from the singular to the plural, did he suddenly introduce other people in the group with him that have received grace and apostleship? I'm going to tell you I don't think he did. I think this is an editorial plural. This is like when you say we and you mean me, I, right? You guys ever do that? You ever write and say we think this and you mean I think this, but, you know, I kind of include other people there kind of a general sense because you're going to all agree with me anyways, right? It's an editorial plural. He's saying, he's really saying I, but he's using we. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship. We know that because not everybody's received apostleship. Certainly those in Rome had not received it to whom he's writing. He goes on and he says this. We've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. What Paul wants to establish is that grace and apostleship have, are really not only this idea that he's received grace that is for election and calling and salvation, but it's also grace that is for gifting to do what God has called him to do. It's more than just the idea that I received grace and now I'm saved. It's this idea that Paul has in his mind that grace is this comprehensive work of God in which he elects us, in which he calls us, in which he regenerates us, in which he saves us or justifies us, in which he sanctifies us, in which he glorifies us, and in which he calls us and empowers us to service. It is all that. And there are four truths about this grace and how I receive it that I want to show you. First, our whole salvation, our whole salvation is completely of grace. Our salvation is all of grace. Nothing else. In Romans 4.4, 4, this statement is made. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Hear that? To the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. A gift is grace, but as his due. It's not by works, or it wouldn't be by grace. It goes on in chapter 11, verse 6, and Paul does and says this, further in this concept, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. You hear that? In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, what does he say? For it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works so that no man shall boast. 2 Timothy 1, 9 says this. 
speaking of the gospel by the power of God, he says this, God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our, our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Our salvation is in no way by works. Scripture is clear that salvation is all of grace. That Paul understood that. He understood that in regard to himself, which he's stating here, and he understands that in regard to us, the whole church. Second, we receive grace through Christ Jesus our Lord. How do we receive it? We receive it through Christ Jesus our Lord. Just like Paul received it through Christ Jesus our Lord. We receive it the same way. In Romans chapter 5, verse 1, this statement is made by Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, this statement of chapter 5 also. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. He's the mediator of the grace that we receive. In chapter 6, verse 23, it says, But the wages of sin is death, right? And the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Titus, chapter 3, Paul writing to Titus, he says this in Titus 3, 5. He saved us, speaking of God our Savior, he saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Our salvation is all of grace, and we receive that grace through the mediation of Christ Jesus, our Lord. We have to be clear about that. Paul's making that very clear at the beginning that he understands that about himself. I want to say a third thing about grace, though. The grace of salvation produces great joy. The grace of salvation produces great joy. How can I say that? The Greek word for grace is charis. And here it's karin because of the accusative, but that's a side note. Charis, that's the Greek word for grace. The cognate to the Greek word charis or grace, the cognate word to that is kara. What that cognate word means? Joy. You see, grace is that which produces joy. It's that which produces joy. In Psalm 67, the psalmist understands this. Speaking of God, he says, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. 
that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. Because the saving power of God has been sung or proclaimed throughout all the nations. It produces joy in us. Why do we sing for joy? Because he saved us. And we'll eventually enter fully the joy of our Father. Leon Morris made the statement that nothing brings joy like that great, inexplicable saving act of God in Christ in which he freely brings about our salvation without any contribution from our side. Fourth, grace empowers us for service. Grace and apostleship in Romans chapter 1 are so closely tied that you could actually, the the little and word between them could actually be translated in a way where it doesn't say grace and apostleship is two separate things. It says grace even apostleship or the grace of apostleship. It's this idea that he he understands that the grace that called him out into salvation also called him out into good works, into service. It's this understanding, this completeness of the grace of God in our lives when he saves us. He has this understanding. Paul taught that the grace of salvation is a grace that empowers us for service, that we were set apart before our birth for it. In Galatians 1, he talks about this actually, um, about his own life. He makes a statement about his own calling into ministry. In Galatians 1, talking about his call to apostleship, he says this, For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ, speaking of his conversion experience. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the tradition of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Why? In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Listen, Paul understood that God, when he calls you out, does not call you out just so he can offer you salvation and you can sit in a corner somewhere. He calls you out and saves you so that you can proclaim his glory throughout the earth. That's why he does it. It's not preeminently for your own good, although it is for your good. It is preeminently for his glory. And so he gifts you for service to bring glory to his name. I just quoted Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. People usually stop short there and forget about verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Right. For good works, which he prepared beforehand uh, beforehand that we should walk in them. 
Romans chapter 12, the same understanding of grace comes out in Romans 12, which we'll spend more time on, obviously, in six years or so. But the uh, <laughs> Romans chapter 12, verse 6, this statement is made. Speaking of spiritual gifts for the church and service, he says this. Having gifts, talking about how we all have different gifts, we're members of the same body. Having gifts that differ, listen, according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. There he's not talking about grace into salvation. We all receive the same grace into salvation. But with that grace into salvation came differing grace unto gifting for service. Have a different calling in our lives. Very few are called to be apostles. Some are called to be pastors te- pastor teachers like myself. Some are called to be single. Paul talks about that. Think about that. Doesn't sound like a gift most people want. Apparently it's there. Some are called to be moms. That's what they're called to be. Some are called to be men who are elders in the church. Some are called to be academicians, scholars, or businessmen. I don't know what God's calling each and every one of you into, but I guarantee you, in some way, he expects that he has set you apart before birth that you might use that calling for his glory. And he empowers you to do it. In 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says this. Listen. By the grace of God, I am what I am. You hear that? Stay-at-home moms. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The grace of God that is with me. That's, that's the strength Paul worked in, in his calling. In the way God set him apart. God has set you all apart for something. I don't know exactly what. He's called you. He's given you a location. I don't know what it is for you. But he empowers you to do it. He gifts you for it. And he expects you to use it so that his gospel is proclaimed in all nations for his glory. For some of you, proclaiming his gospel in all nations for his glory might begin with little children at home. For some of you, it's in the workplace. For some of you, it's in the college. For some of you, it's in a hospital somewhere or a business place. And for some of you, it's going to be going overseas in missions. And for some of you, it's going to be as pastors in the church. But that's up to God, and he sets you apart for it. And let me tell you, when he calls you out, when he saves you and sets you apart for it, he gives you everything you need to accomplish it. You hear that? Because it's all of grace. So at the end of the day, you still can't boast. Because it's all him. It's one of the reasons I love 
Derek Webb, you know, actually Sandra McCracken's understanding of grace, because she wrote the song, right, um, that Derek Webb sings. But at the end of this one song, she makes this, or he, singing, says, when I stand on the edges of Jordan, the saints and the angels beside, when my body's been healed and the glory revealed, still I can boast only in Christ. Isn't that awesome? It's understanding it's all of grace, even our glorification. Even when we're completely holy in every way, we have nothing to boast about except Christ. Not only is Christ the head of the church and the source of the grace that produces joy and empowers us for service, Christ is the Savior and Lord we obediently trust. Christ is the Savior and Lord that we obediently trust. Paul's purpose or mission was to bring the obedience of faith to the nations for the sake of Christ's name. So then the question becomes, what in the world is the obedience of faith? That seems like a strange statement. You're saying we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, and then you're telling us that he wants to bring the obedience of faith to the nation. Obedience sounds like works to me. So what is the obedience of faith? Well, really there's three options. The first option is that it could mean obedience to the faith. By the faith, we mean a body of doctrine known as Christian theology. Some scholars have chosen that option, although I think it's a problematic option because there is no article in this sentence and there is no grammatical reason why an article would need to be added. Article is the, right? An article is the. There is no the in this sentence. And there's no reason to add it. Second option is it could mean obedience that flows from faith. That we have faith and obedience flows from it. Grammatically, that's possible. The obedience of faith, that, that phrase is, is flexible enough that it could be the obedience that flows from faith, which we've heard that before. Third, it could mean the obedience that consists in faith. Listen, it's obedience that is faith or that consists in faith. I'd argue, I would argue that it is the obedience that consists in faith. That's what Paul's talking about here. That would be the choice I would make. I argue this because it seems more theologically consistent, not because the grammar requires it. It has to be one of the last two. It's either the obedience that flows from faith or it's the obedience that consists in faith. The grammar does not require either one. I think Paul's theology does. I think Paul's theology puts us in the direction that what he's talking about here is obedience that is or that consists in faith. And I want to explain that to you, what that means. I argue this because it seems consistent with the rest of Paul's understanding of the call to believe the gospel as a command. God gives a command, right? Believe the gospel. So if you do, what are you doing? Obeying. By believing. In Romans 6.17, Paul says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart 
to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. In Romans 10.3, making the comment about the Jews not accepting or not believing the gospel, not believing the Messiah, he says this, for being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit. Listen, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They did not submit to the gospel. It's this idea of submission or obedience in faith. In 10.16, he goes on and he said, makes the strangest comment about the Jews here from our way of thinking. He says this, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, it was believed what he heard from us. See the contrast he just makes between obeyed. They have not obeyed, all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us. He sees obeying the gospel as believing. Second Thessalonians, Paul's writing in chapter one. Verse 5, Paul says this to the church of Thessalonica, starting in verse 5, I'll read. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Some of us really like that, don't we? Anyways, but, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now listen, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Peter argues for the same thing in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. He makes a very similar statement. He says this, having purified your souls, listen, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Isn't that a strange statement? It's talking about faith. They obeyed the gospel. It's faith. What we need to understand is that sin is not just breaking laws. Listen, sin is not believing God's word. It's the heart of sin. It is sin to not trust God. What did Adam and Eve fail to do? When they disobeyed in the garden, what did they fail to do? Trust the word of God, isn't it? Isn't that what they failed to do? That's how they disobeyed. So God declares to us in his word that we are commanded to believe in him. God commands you to believe and repent of your sins. He doesn't ask you to. He commands it. Repent and believe are in the form of imperatives. They're commands. It's not optional. To reject his word is to disobey. Not trusting is disobedience and trusting him is obedience. This is why Paul says, can say in Romans 14, 23, that whatever is not of faith is sin. Hear that? Even doing good things, not of faith, is sin. Because you're not trusting God. In 
a great 20th century scholar named John Murray said this, The faith which the gospel promotes is not a fading emotional experience, but the commitment of wholehearted devotion to Christ and the truth of his gospel. The great Protestant reformer John Calvin said that those who reject the gospel perversely resist... Listen, this is a strange way to say this. It just struck me when I was reading it. Those who reject the gospel perversely resist the authority of God and upset the whole of what he has ordained. The Apostle John probably makes this most clear. In 1 John chapter 3, he says this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 23, speaking of God's command to obey, says this. And this is his commandment. You ready? This is his commandment. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in them. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. Hear that? This is a commandment that we believe. There are some in the church today who claim that faith is merely intellectual assent. That's all it is. It's just this intellectual assent. I think it's true. That sounds true to me. Demons know that Jesus died and rose from the dead, that he's the Son of God, and that salvation is only through him. They intellectually assent. They are not saved. That is not the kind of faith that saves. They, they believe that so much that when they read Romans 10.9, listen, this is what 10, Romans 10.9 says, right? If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And they say, all this means is you need to think rightly about the truth of the gospel. Confessing and believing, you know, just think rightly about the truth of the gospel. What they don't understand is believing with your heart is more than just an emotional experience or a feeling. It's more than just an intellectual idea. Believing with your heart encompasses your whole person. It's a trust that encompasses all of you. They'll either say it's intellectual assent, or what they'll say is it's the other option they'll give is it's a one-time, some sort of one-time experience of grace I had somewhere way back in the 80s when I ran up an aisle in a church. That's, save, that's faith that saves. That's not what we're talking about. Let me say this clearly. There's no such thing as having Christ as Savior and not as Lord. And some people try to argue that. That I intellectually sent to him, I make him my Savior. And some other day, that will actually issue in obedience. That will actually issue in a love for him. That will actually issue in some kind of fruit in my life. Some other time where I'll see him as Lord. simply nonsense. A gospel that does not require belief in Christ as Lord of all is a false gospel in which it's a false gospel in which Christ is not Lord at all. Not. When you obey the gospel call by believing in Christ, it's not just a sent to the facts or a one-time experience of belief. It's a wholehearted devotion to Christ. It is life-transforming. It issues in obedience because you believe God, you trust him, and you are empowered by his grace to serve and honor him. Not because of something you generate within yourself, but because when you receive the grace of God by faith, 
You are changed. You are transformed. The Spirit of God comes into you. He renews your heart. He takes away your heart of stone and gives you a heart of flesh. And you desire to keep His commandments because the Spirit is within you. And it's a radical life transformation. And He gifts you and empowers you for service. Do you have times of rebellion? Yes. Do you have days where you disobey? Yes. But as a change in the orientation of your life in which you desire for Him to be the Lord whom you follow forever and whom you rejoice in forever. And it produces a joy in you that is inexplicable to people in the midst of trials and suffering and all sorts of other stuff. People are going, how can you rejoice? Because I know that one day I will walk into the full joy of my father in heaven. That's how. How great a salvation I have. I know that. Paul goes on to say that his mission is to bring all nations to the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name, which we're going to talk about next week. But I want you to get a hold of this, that Jesus is the focus of the mission that Paul has, and he is the focus of the mission of this church. As we affirm him as our Lord, we also affirm him as the source of grace. And we affirm him as our Savior and Lord, personally, individually, and as a collective group of people. We trust him. If we commit our church to trusting in Christ as the focus of the good news and the center of our mission, he will bless us. Hear that? If we commit our church to trusting in Christ as the good news and center or focus of our mission, he will bless us. I'm not going to tell you what that blessing looks like. It might look like suffering and death. It might look like numerical growth. I don't know. But he will bless us. John, John Huss understood this. John Huss understood that God would bless his ministry. Why? Because he knew God would bless the declaring of his gospel. He will. Because he's more jealous to have it declared than anyone else. John Huss understood it so much so that it's reported that before the, his burning, before they burned him, before they took him out, while he was on trial before the council at Constance, he said to the bishop of Constance, do you hear this? The bishop of Constance, he said this to him. Honestly, you may silence this goose, but there will come after me one whom you will not be able to silence. What's amazing is that a hundred years later at Erfurt, Martin Luther the great Protestant reformer was being ordained to be a minister. And he was laying on the floor prostrate as, minister, as, or, as happens at ordinations in the shape of a cross. And he was laying on the tomb, on the crypt of the Bishop of Constance. Did God not have the last laugh in that? To which... I don't remember if it was R.C. Sproul or John MacArthur made the comment that just perhaps 
the last thing the Bishop of Constance said to John Huss was, over my dead body. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for him. He is the center of our mission. He's the focus of it because he is the center and the focus of the gospel. Lord, he is the good news. And we thank you for him. Lord, let us be a church that always upholds him as our head. He has lordship here. That we will not replace his word with something else. That we will not come to a point where we believe that his word lacks clarity or any kind of propositional truth. Lord, that we will hold it forth with boldness, knowing that it is the word of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to be a church that constantly recalls the fact that you, Jesus, are the source of the grace that we receive. And that your grace saves us to the uttermost. And Lord, that it empowers us to do what you've called us to. And help us to be a church, Lord, that sees you as both the Savior and Lord whom we obediently trust. That you are the center of our faith. That we are always faithful to your command to obey you by trusting you. Lord, we know we know that we will fail and we will continually need your grace. Lord, we know you are faithful and that the good work you have begun in us, you will bring to completion. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me um, read 1 Corinthians 11 to you as we go to communion.